Hello, and welcome to As We Wait, an in-depth, verse-by-verse study of the entire Bible, led by pastor and teacher Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California. Let's join Mike as he focuses on chapter 10 in our study of the New Testament Gospel of John. We have a few moments before we begin, so let's get our Bibles and notebooks and prepare our hearts and minds to receive the Word of the Lord. You know, Jesus describes in John chapter 14, verse 21, He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. He's the one that hears my word and responds to it. In John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. John again reiterates this in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And then it goes on to say, And his commandments are not grievous. You know, when God calls us to do something, it's good. It's always good. Now in verse 28, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Please note that it is Jesus who gives eternal life. And that's the price. Eternal life is literally a gracious gift from Jesus. And we can't get that anywhere else. Jesus tells us later on in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way in Acts chapter 2. You know, there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. And so Jesus is the only way. He's the one who gives eternal life. And then he says, Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. I like that. I like that that we can't be taken away. We can't be stolen away. You know, people discuss how big is God's hand and can we really jump out or not and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. But this, to me, in a certain sense, talks about eternal security. No man shall pluck them out of my hand. Now, what is eternal security? It's kind of like that, again, we get into one of these kind of nebulous kind of discussions or arguments. Once saved, always saved. But then they always get down to, well, was he really saved to begin with? And I don't know. Yes, no, maybe. I see scriptures, again, kind of on both sides of this. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, here we read, Let your conversation or let your conduct be without covetousness. And be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so it sounds to me like Jesus has a handle on it. He's never going to leave us or forsake us. We can trust him. One of my favorite passages in Scripture, Romans chapter 8, verses 37 and forward, it says, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love that. There's security in that. It kind of comes down to where people are at in their walk sometimes. There are those that need assurance of their salvation, and so there's those scriptures that give them that assurance that they're saved, they're in God's hands, that God will keep them and protect them. But you know, there are sometimes other Christians that maybe need a kick in the pants. There are sometimes other Christians that maybe need a warning. 
as well because they think that, well, you know, hey, I'm saved. So I can kind of pretty much go out and do whatever I want to do now because God's grace is going to cover that. I kind of refer to it as greasy grace or sloppy agape. You know, you hear those phrases. And there are sometimes those people that will abuse those things. And then there's scriptures on the other side of that issue. When I read this scripture, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again into repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now you read that verse and you go, whoa. Does it contradict the other verses, you know, Romans 8, 37 and forward and, and Hebrews 13, 5? I know that God's word doesn't contradict itself. God does not contradict himself. But our ability to understand what God is saying can be confused. Our ability to comprehend what God is revealing to us can be, in a certain sense, incomplete, or we might not be able to, you know, the elevator doesn't go all the way up to the top yet. <laughs> you know, we're under construction. We only go to the fifth floor, but there's 35 more floors to go. You know, when we get to heaven, we get the rest of the cable. Okay. But it's interesting because you read this verse and you think, wow. If I know the Lord, if I walk in his ways and I turn away from that, see, that's not the same as being taken out of God's hand. It's, it's jumping out in a certain sense. So where is that? Another scripture is Second uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 19 and forward. It says, For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they've known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Like, wow. And you know, just so you know, the, the word here in Second Peter that's used for known, it's a derivative of gnosko. Remember, gnosko is to know intimately or personally. And it's the word epigonosko. And that means to know fully, okay, to, to really know. And so it's not talking about someone that backslides and then comes back or, or makes a mistake and then comes back, because that's possible. Ours is the God of the second chance. But this is talking about somebody who really knows what they're doing. At one point, turns around and says, you know, God, I reject you. You know, I don't believe in you anymore. And they forcefully, willfully walk away from the Lord. Like, wow, it would be worse for that person than if they'd never known to begin with. And I think it kind of comes down to what we read in Luke chapter 12, verse 48. For unto whom much is given, much will be required. And so when we talk about eternal security, where is that eternal security? Eternal security is not living under a question mark. If we're in that place of, ah, we saved or not, you know, you know, how far to the outside edges can we go and still be good? People ask that all the time. Well, pastor, can I still do this, this, and this and be saved? And I go, you're asking the wrong question. You're saying, how far to the extremes can I go and still be good? And that's nebulous. I don't know what to tell you. But what I can tell you is that if you abide in Christ, if you stay in that central place of wanting to please him and honor him, there is safety there. There is security there. So that's what you want to do. You want to engage in that abiding relationship with the Lord. Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and forward, it says, that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and shall believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. Now did you notice the tense 
In King James, it's believeth, which is present tense. But in New King James, and most of the modern translation, it says those who believes like present tense, believes here and now. Not believed once upon a time, not will believe in a future sense, but those that believe here and now. It's the present active tense as opposed to a past tense. Later on we'll get to it, but in John chapter 15 and the first 11 verses, the word abide is used uh, seven different times. I have too many favorite verses, I guess. But in uh, John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He that abideth in me or abides in me and I in him, saying, brings forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. But where's that branch going to bear fruit? In an abiding relationship in Christ. When we talk about abiding, we mean someone that remains there, that dwells there. And Jesus is using this illustration of a vine and a branch. You know, the apple tree out in the backyard has got a bunch of apples on it right now. It's bearing a lot of fruit. And if we go out and cut off one of those branches that's, that's connected to the tree, right now all the branches are abiding in the tree. Okay? The nutrients and uh, the strength and everything is coming up through the trunk of the tree and out to the branches. Okay? And that's an abiding relationship. The branches are getting strength from the rest of the tree. But if we take a saw and go out in the backyard and cut off one of those branches or some pruners and cut off a little branch and it falls to the ground, is it going to grow anymore? Is it going to bear any more fruit? No, because it's been disconnected from the vine, if you will, disconnected from the main plant. It's going to wither and die. And that's what happens to us as Christians when we're not in an abiding relationship in Christ. We wither, we dry up, and eventually we die. We need to be connected to the source. And so that's that abiding relationship, and that's where our security really is. Now, in verse 30, it says, I and my Father are one. Jesus has basically given them the answer to their question. They say, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah or not? And he says, I and my Father are one. Now, if you heard him say that personally, what would you think? I'd be kind of going, oh, I guess so. It seems pretty clear to me. This is one of the strongest statements from Jesus regarding his own deity. It's very clear. And again, he'll get strong later on as well, but not as strong as this. In John chapter 14, verse 9, he that has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. They've gone to stone him a couple times already because basically he said, you know, he was the Son, and that God was his Father, implying that he was equal with God. Now he's making it very clear that God the Father and I are one. Now this is different, okay? There are those that they call them oneness Pentecostals. They don't believe in the Father or the Holy Spirit. They only believe in Jesus, that Jesus is the Father, that Jesus is the Holy Spirit. And so they don't believe in a trinity, in other words. But the Bible is very clear. It doesn't mention the word trinity per se, but the concept or the idea of the Trinity it starts out at the very beginning of the Bible. You know, in the beginning, God, Elohim. It's a singular word, but it expresses a multiplicity. Okay, it doesn't say two or three or four, but a multiplicity of God. And then you get into all kinds of scriptures in the New Testament. Uh, from uh, Matthew 28, Jesus said, Go forth and make disciples of all men and, and baptize them in what? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He didn't say baptize them in the name of me, myself, and I. Okay, And there's a lot of other scriptures out there uh, in the Bible that describe the Trinity. And so Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus and the Holy Spirit are one. God the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are one. These three are one, but they're separate, distinct persons or characters, if you will, in the Bible. And so 
I like this, again, this strong statement, I and, the, and my Father are one. Well, we'll move forward a little bit since it's still kind of early. Verse 31, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. I guess they understood his answer. Whenever the Jews pick up stones, that means they figured out that they you know, understood his answer, and they're going to stone him, they're going to kill him, because he claimed to be God. Now, the Jews only asked that question as a pretext to stoning Jesus. And I have this old saying that I just kind of live by a little bit. It says, don't ask the question if you don't want the answer. And the thing is, that's actually the answer that they were looking for. Uh, in verse 32, Jesus answered them, Many good works have I shown you uh, from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, because thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Sounds to me like they understood his response pretty good. You know, Jesus tries to reason with them, but they refuse. And the Jews understand exactly what he's saying. And it's kind of cool because... They even describe what, in a sense, Jesus is. They said, because thou being a man, Jesus was fully man. He said, make yourself to be God. And Jesus is fully God. So even though they got the right answer, they got it for the wrong reasons. <laughs> They're so close. They would have just yielded themselves a little bit. But in verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? Now, is it not written in your law? Notice that it's your law, not his law. And it's not in the Psalms. In Psalm 82, verse 6, quoting the law, uh, that's exactly what he's quoting, and refers to the judges. In those days, if you were a judge over Israel, basically, unlike our judges today, I mean, our judges are pretty powerful. But in those days, if they came before the judge and he said, you're guilty, he could say, go out and stone that guy. And they went out and they stoned that guy. And so they referred to them as, quote, unquote, gods with the little g, because they had the power of life and death. And so Jesus kind of challenges them on this point. In Exodus chapter 22, verses 8 and 9, again, uh, the judges referring to his gods, and it's actually the same word, uh, Elohim. Jesus has declared openly that he is God, and the Jews are standing there with stones in their hands, and he's speaking to them about the law, and he says, I said, you know, basically he's not backing down. He's not cutting them any slack. And isn't it kind of interesting? They're sitting there, and all these guys are gathered. They've surrounded Jesus. Would anybody here be intimidated if you're kind of like by yourself and like 30 or 40 or 50 men surround you, and then they pick up rocks, and they're waiting for your answer? <laughs> like, would that alter your answer? Would that, you know, cause you to be like, um, uh, sudden memory loss? <laughs> you might be thinking, I can break through the crowd. But Jesus doesn't back down. Jesus doesn't can't his testimony. He can't, because he can't deny himself. Jesus is God. And so, it, to me, it's kind of interesting, because Jesus is actually the one doing all the talking here, and these guys are left still holding the rocks with nothing they can really do. In verse 35, it says, If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, and the scriptures cannot be broken. I like that, that the scriptures can't be broken. Jesus actually speaks to the infallibility of Scripture, that God's word will come true. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, we read that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. I love that, that we can count on God's word. It truly is the anchor to our soul. David declares in Psalm 138, verse 2, he said, you've magnified your word above all your name. You know, God's name is holy. That's why the third commandment, don't take the Lord's name in vain. And we have to be careful how we use God's name. 
But it's interesting that as holy as God's name is, he values his word even above his name. And we should value his word as well. Joshua declares in Joshua chapter 23, verse 14, Not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you, and not one word of them has failed. Joshua was a guy that had been a slave in Egypt. He had seen Moses come through, being guided by God. He ended up being Moses' assistant. And he was privy to being able to see the very presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God come down from heaven in the form of a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Uh, he got to escort Moses partway up Mount Sinai when you know there was this huge cloud of darkness and the thunder and the lightning and, and all the stuff. And when fire came down on top of the mountain and the people were afraid, they didn't want to go. They didn't even want to look. And Joshua was halfway up the mountain when that happened. He had a front row seat. Joshua got to see the Red Sea parted. Joshua got to see the faithfulness of God as leadership transitioned from Moses to Joshua. And Joshua got to lead him across the swollen Jordan River into the Promised Land. Joshua got to see uh, Jericho, the walls fall down. All these things. Joshua saw the Word of God lived out on a daily basis. He saw the miracles of God. And he stood there very boldly, almost on his deathbed, saying, Not one word of God has failed. There's a guy that trusted the Word of God. We're told in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, that God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Uh, has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and shall he not make it good? God keeps his word. And because God keeps his word, we can trust him. You know, if God was capricious like Allah and changes his mind, changes his word, we'd be sweating right now because we go, well, am I saved or not? Am I going to heaven or not? What's the standard? But God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. In verse 36, Say ye of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God. You know, Jesus is trying to reason with them with verse 35. And, you know, if the unjust judges in the Old Testament were called gods, how much more should the just judge be called God? How much more? Did any of the judges of the Old Testament that were called gods, did they raise the dead? Did they heal the blind? Did they make the lame walk? They did none of those things. John the Baptist was acknowledged as a prophet. What miracles did he do? John the Baptist didn't do a single miracle. Yet they knew that he was a man of God because of the things that he spoke and, and the way that he spoke them. Jesus was, in a certain sense, sanctified and proven to be sent by God and approved of God, what? By miracles and signs and wonders. Everything he did was consistent with the Word of God. In verse 37, If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though you believe not, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Jesus again, you know, kind of from verse 25, states that the works that he has done were the works of the Father, and they testify of him. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, when Jesus is addressing this crowd of people, it's at Pentecost, and then at one point Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested or proved to be of God, to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. The arguments have always been, how did this happen? But they never disputed the fact that all these things happened. I mean, how were you healed? They weren't into whether he was healed or not. It was, what was the process? And when they would challenge these different people, the lame guy that walks, the blind guy that sees, all that kind of stuff, 
they can't refute the fact that there's a guy standing in front of them that was blind from birth. They can't dispute the fact that there was a guy that was, in some cases, lame from birth or lame for 38 years. Everybody saw him. And now he's jumping around and spazzing out and stuff. And Peter rightfully points out, you know that he did these miracles. He's attested. God is kind of, in a certain sense, approved of him by giving him the power to do that. That was the point behind the miracles of the Old Testament. Like you'd see these prophets like uh, Elijah and Elisha. You know, they say, thus saith the Lord. Well, how do you know? Well, when he called fire down from heaven and consumed the the altar, that's a clue. You know, (laughs) those guys danced around their stupid altar and, and poked each other and bled and screamed and carried on for half the day and nothing happened. And then Elijah starts to mock them. Well, maybe your God's in the restroom or something, man. Maybe you need to yell louder. And so they did. And it got worse and worse and worse. And finally, just to prove the point, he pours water over it like seven times and floods the place. Then he invokes, he prays to the the true and the living God. And what happens? Fire comes down from heaven. And then Elijah turns around and kills all those prophets. But why did he let them get away with that? Because they knew all of a sudden he is a prophet of God. And when those things happen, you read that the people trembled. Why did they tremble? Because they knew that God was in their midst. (laughs) That there was a man of God speaking for God, and God was saying, hey, repent, straighten up and fly right, or you're going to get smacked around. Paraphrase version of Mike. And the bottom line is, God authenticated the prophet, or in this case, Jesus, who was more than a prophet, by the miracles themselves. In verse 39, Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand and went away again beyond Jordan into the place where John at first baptized, and there he abode. He stayed there. So again, they try to take Jesus. They've got him surrounded. This is like a ninja movie. Where'd he go? You know? And they're all like, it's like Keystone Cops. They're all like focused, they're going to grab him, and all of a sudden he's gone. Like, where'd he go? Where'd he go? And they're all standing there holding rocks and no one to throw them at. Why? Because it was not his time yet. His appointed time is coming, but it's not yet. It's still about two months or so, three months to the cross. So he remains apart from Jerusalem until really the death of Lazarus. Then finally, in verse 41 and 42, And many resorted unto him, that means many people came to him, and said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spoke of this man are true. And many believed on him there. Again, Uh, John didn't do any miracles, but he simply spoke about Jesus. He pointed people to Jesus. And what did John say? Back in in John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, John the Baptist was always a faithful witness, always pointing to Jesus. And then Jesus said, actually, that John the Baptist was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. I mentioned Elijah and Elisha, who got a double portion. These are men that were considered some of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. Yet John the Baptist, who did no miracles, Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest. Why is that? Because John the Baptist heralded the presence of Jesus. He said, you know what? Repent of your sins because the king is coming. Repent of your sins because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John had that close proximity to Jesus. And then it says, and many believed in him there, verse 42. Unlike the Jewish leaders, the people had nothing to lose. You think about why the the religious establishment rejected Jesus. I can tell you one of the reasons. It goes back to the concessions and to their status and to their economics. I guess I could put the question to all of us this way. If accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior meant you would lose your job and lose your house, 
would you still do it? Because that's what was happening to these people. When they acknowledged that Jesus was their Lord and Savior, they were kicked out of the synagogue. They were kicked out of the temple. They were no longer allowed to buy and sell to Jews. They were kicked out of Judaism. Like this poor blind guy that got healed. He can see. He's all right. All right. An hour later, he's been kicked out of the temple. He was excommunicated from Judaism. Now, being a poor blind beggar, he didn't have a house. He didn't have a job. He had nothing to lose. And a lot of these people that came to Jesus, they had nothing to lose. They were much more open to the truth they were able to hear. And the words of Jesus had their desired effect. You know, we read in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And what happened? These people heard the voice of Jesus. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. And then the last verse here is, and many believed on him there. They resorted unto Jesus. And I, I pray that as we hear his voice, as we respond to him, and as our good shepherd leads us through the door into the fold, or as he leads us out of the fold into the green pasture, that we would partake of that green grass, we would drink deep of that water that he gives us, so we, we can drink freely of that water, that we would be healthy, we'd be strong, and that we would honor him. And that we wouldn't look back. You know, all the arguments, the philosophical stuff, the theological stuff about once saved, always saved, and back and forth, back and forth, what's it matter? What matters is that we have a close and intimate an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. And then one day we'll get to be with him forever in heaven. And that day is coming sooner than any of us think. (laughs) Amen? Amen. Gracious Father, once again, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for blessing us. We thank you, Lord, for feeding us. We thank you, Lord, for pouring out your spirit upon us. And we ask, Lord, that by the power of your spirit, you simply help us to walk in your ways, to have ears to hear, Lord, and willing hearts. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that's all the time we have for now. You've just been listening to Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California, expounding upon chapter 10 in the Gospel of John. Please join us again next time as we continue our study through the book of John and the entire Bible. As We Wait is an outreach ministry of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California. We pray that you have been blessed and would like to invite you to join us in person. We meet at 450 Richmond Road, Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30, Wednesday evenings at 7, and communion is celebrated the first Sunday of each month at 6 p.m. To get the entire study on CD, you can call the church office at 530-257-4833 or write to us at P.O. Box 1316, Susanville, California, 96130. For more information or to stream all of our broadcasts, you can go to www.ccsusanville.com. Until we meet again, may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus be upon you. you.